As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at KillerQueensPodcast. And we're on YouTube at KillerQueens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. Merry Christmas! Happy holidays! Oh my god, okay, I went grocery shopping yesterday, and mm-hmm. I put on NSYNC Christmas in my headphones, and I was breaking it the fuck down in the grocery store. <laughs> and I was like, like, I would forget that, like other people are around me and I'd be listening to it. I'm like, and happy. Oh my God. And I'm like, but I have my mask on. So I'm like, I don't think they can see me singing, but they can't see you, but they do have ears that can listen. So. <laughs> they do have ears. So there you go. Also, I was just thinking about this. Normally we would release this on December the 26th, but what if now we're talking from the future into the past and it's, it's weird, but what if we release this on Christmas day? <gasps> It's a Christmas miracle. Yeah, it's a Christmas miracle. Wouldn't that be cool? We're going to give love on <laughs> Christmas Day. We sure are. So, yes. Merry Christmas, y'all. Merry Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, We've already gotten another bad review about talking too much, so should we get into it? <laughs> <laughs> like, by the time we started this episode and gotten to hear, somebody's left us a bad review. But it's Christmas, you guys, and we love you, and we like hanging out with you, so. Yes. I think uh, I think we're just proving them right, and we're also saying we just want to talk. I'm sorry. We just have to. Yeah. We just care. We do. Have a heart. Okay, let's do it's it, though. Christmas. Okay, so this is our Christmas special, and Sloane did kind of like a a mixtape of sorts of Christmas murders. Mm. So we've got three cases today. Whoa. Shoo-wee. 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 Yep. Let us get into the first case, and thank you, Sloane, for putting all this together. It's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody requested any of these because she just came up with them. So here we go. This first one is the Wooliver murders. Is that right? The Wooliver murders. Wooliver. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It looks like a who laver. I know. 
So I was very surprised when I heard it pronounced Wooliver, and I was like, I've not been saying that right at all. No, it makes more sense to be like the Who's down in Hulaver. Yeah, yep, exactly. This one does not have the Grinch in it, though. Mm -mm. Okay, the first case does carry a trigger warning mention of sexual abuse, um, incestual, and child neglect. So please just know that's not your jam. Skip forward. I don't know how long we're going to talk about it, but there's two other cases. So there you go. Yes. On December 24th, 2002 in Pennsylvania, Joe and Mary Bittman were waiting on their daughter, Jean Wooliver, to arrive with her daughters, Victoria, who at the time was 20 years old, and Elizabeth, who was 15 years old at the time, and she went by Izzy. They were also would be bringing Victoria's nine-month-old daughter, Madison. So every Christmas Eve, the girls came from their home in, I also heard this pronounced Middletown and Middleton. I think it's Middleton. I swear everything up in like the New Englandy area, they just completely disregard Engl- the ling- English language. Yeah, I think they do it because they're like, those dumb Southerners won't know what we're talking about. <sighs> Maybe they don't. They can't handle the fact that we draw everything <laughs> out so much. I don't know. They're like, would you like- just get the word out? Just say the word. Yes. <laughs> We're like Shelbyville. Yeah, we can't. They just completely, they're like, f- just skip over multiple parts of the word. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for this. Three quarters of that word is silent. Yes. Yeah. So Middleton, PA. Okay. Eerie PA. <laughs> um. So they were going to come from their home in Middleton, PA, to the Bittman home in Jonestown, PA, where they would spend the night so they could all be together Christmas Day and open presents the next morning. So Mary is concerned because they're late for dinner. It was a two and a half hour drive from Middleton and it was December in the north. So there's snow and they're like, okay, well, maybe they got caught up in some traffic. Mary had made many calls to Jean, but they all went to voicemail or answering machine and none of the calls are returned. So Mary finally decides like, okay, I'm going to call the police to go check on them. First, they checked with the police to see if there were any accidents on the highway, and then she asked them to do a welfare check at the Wooliver house. The dispatchers she spoke with seemed to have as much interest in their job as the officers Kevin's mom talked to in Home Alone when she tried to get them to check on Kevin. They're like, um, I'm going to transfer you. Also, (laughs) like, we watched that last night, and I was like, in this day and age, if you were like, hey, so I'm in Paris, okay, my kid is there in Chicago. Um, Could you just go make sure he's okay? They'd be like, you are so under arrest wherever the fuck you are. (laughs) Left your kid in Chicago? Like, they wouldn't just be like, okay, I'll make sure he looks like he's doing fine till you get back in two or three days. Yeah, exactly. And then they still, they're like, I love how, (laughs) I don't know, it's funny to me whenever they go, they're going back and forth passing her off to the other person. And the woman, I think she like knocks on the thing and she's like, hey, hyper on two. Like, <laughs> yeah. She sounds kind of hyper. Right. And he's like, and it's the, it's Mr. Hinkle. Is that his name? Hinkle? Heckles. Heckles. Yeah. What am I doing? Mr. Heckles. And he's like, has the child been involved in a blah, blah, blah. She's like, I don't know. I'm not there. He's like, okay. And then finally they send somebody out and then the cop gets out there and he keeps knocking on the door and he's like, the house 
house is secure. There's lights on. Tell them to count their kids again. I'm like, I know. No, they said their kid is not there. Like, they know for sure they left their kid. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> okay. Everybody is like, we don't have time for this. Yeah. Leave me alone here. Yeah. And these officers were exactly the same. They were like, look, if you haven't seen them tomorrow, then call back because tomorrow exactly. we don't have really much to do. Today, we're not feeling it. Tomorrow, we might. Exactly. Whatever. By the next morning, Jean, Victoria, Elizabeth, and baby Madison still had not arrived. Mary called the police again and asked them for a welfare check again. So Sergeant Robert Givler went over to the home just after 7 a.m. When he first arrived, he saw nothing out of the ordinary. Sergeant Givler knocked on the door and rang the bell but got no answer. The blinds were drawn and the house making, making it difficult for him to look into the windows. So he made his way around the back of the house. And this is when things began to look more suspicious. The glass in the windows of the door to the garage had been broken in, and when he checked to see if it was locked, he found that it wasn't. Givler opened the door and saw Jean's car. He then knocked on the door from the garage to the house and still got no answer, so he tried that door too, and it was also unlocked. Givler called out to anyone in the house to make his presence known, but he still got no answer. Then Givler found the first body. Just inside the kitchen was the body of a woman who was later identified as the body of 43-year-old Jean Wooliver. He went to check her pulse and found that she was cold to the touch. They assumed that she'd been making her coffee that morning when someone shot her from behind, causing her to drop the coffee filter she'd been holding because they they found, like, the coffee filter with some coffee still in it, like, kind of draped over the garbage can, basically. So it was like she was in the process of, mm -hmm. you know, making this coffee. Making coffee and then it got interrupted, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, at this point, Sergeant Gibbler calls for backup so they could clear and secure the scene. He called the homicide unit and the crime scene investigation unit. And once the backup arrived, Gibbler and the other officers cleared the first floor and then they heard a noise. This is so... Ugh, I just got chills. It was coming from upstairs, so they proceeded with extreme caution. Could it still be the murderer in the house? Like, you know, is there a victim? What's going on? At the top of the stairs, looking down the hallway, the police found another body, but this one was not alone. Lying beside her was a screaming baby. An officer took baby Madison to the EMTs, and it was discovered that she was unharmed despite being dehydrated and probably hungry and definitely in need of a diaper change. So, because how long are we looking at now? You know, they were expected the day before. And this baby is nine months old, has been laying here. Right. One report, I watched the homicide, hom homicide for the holidays, and the detective said that it was something like 30 hours that this baby had been by herself. Mm -hmm. Laying on her dead mother. Mm -hmm. That's horrific. I mean, and it makes you, like, like, left for dead. I understand that you cannot respond, like... I understand that a lot of people, when when family says they're quote-unquote missing, that there's a lot of different reasons that somebody could not have shown up to where they were supposed to be. Had they done a welfare check 30 hours ago? You know? Mm -hmm. I mean, just come on. Yeah, exactly. So the body in the hallway was Victoria, which is Madison's mom. She'd been shot once in the top of her head, and police thought that she was curled over the baby to try to protect her when she was shot. Ugh. 
So sad. Mm-hmm. But they have to continue on. So in the bedroom closest to Victoria's body, the third and final body that was later identified as Elizabeth was lying on the bed. She'd been shot once in her left eye and at such a close range that she had burns on her skin around the wound. Elizabeth also had burns on her hands, indicating that perhaps she grabbed the gun when it was fired. All three women were murdered by a single shot, each with a small caliber gun, but there was no weapon found at the house. Wow. As officers continued to secure the crime scene, they found that the phone lines were cut outside the house. They couldn't have called for help even if they had been able to. As in pretty much all investigations, the officers start with the people closest to the victims and work their way out. So Jean had recently separated from her husband, Ernest Wolliver Jr., having just filed for divorce that summer. Even more damning was the sexual abuse case that Victoria and Izzy had filed against their father. According to sources, Ernest had been molesting Victoria for years, but she had not said anything because he promised he wouldn't do anything to Izzy as long as Victoria kept it a secret. But she found out that he hadn't kept his end of the deal up, and he was hurting Izzy as well, so the girls together pressed charges. What a fucking asshole. The whole way around. It's just disgusting. I cannot. It is. I do not understand... I mean, there are a lot of things in the world that I just don't understand, and I think it's probably for the best, because that means that if you can't understand it, maybe you're incapable of committing it, hopefully, you know? Mm -hmm. But I will never understand how a family member can look at another family member and have a sexual intent in mind. Yeah. I do not understand it. Yeah. And your own children? Uh, no. Uh, <sighs> that's so disgusting. It's yeah. It's terrible. So Gene filed for a protection from abuse order against Ernest that would make it illegal for him to be near either of his daughters or Gene, and he had to move out of the house. After those allegations, Ernest got out of jail on a $100,000 bond and moved in with his parents and his younger brother, Scott, in Cambria, three hours away from Middleton. A trial was set to begin on January 3rd, 2003. Hmm, the timing of that is quite suspicious because we're talking about December 24th, 2002, and this is a couple weeks away. Yeah, it's a little over a week away. Uh-huh, come on. And this is the the three witnesses against you. I mean... Yeah, the three people who would testify against you mm -hmm. in a pretty fucking big trial. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Learning this backstory, police had Ernest come in to talk to them about the murders, and he told police that he'd heard about the murders from family and didn't know who could have killed them. He gave them the alibi that he and Scott had been out in the woods hunting deer and coyotes from about 2 a.m. to 9, 10 a.m. Exactly. <laughs> it's somewhere between 9, 10 and 9, 11 a.m. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Somewhere in that area general area and his brother scott confirmed his alibi but i like okay it i understand that family members can definitely alibi you but that's to be taken with a grain of salt right because how often do family members lie for other family members i mean it's not always but it's not a strong alibi no and it's not a concrete alibi i think Again, I think it goes without saying, I've said it a million times, I'm not lying for you. Mm -mm. If you did something, not doing it. Bye. I'm throwing your ass under the bus. <laughs> yeah. I actually might call in and just say that you probably, they need, you need to be looked into just because. Oh, I probable would cause. not, I would not put that past you. Just stir some shit up. Make Christmas really fun. Exactly. Yeah. 
But I, and I think this was really interesting. I mean, you cut, you don't see this all the time in investigations, but the police were like, okay, look, we don't want to have tunnel vision. We want to look into other people. So they looked into Madison's father, and his name was Frank Ramos, and he went by Frankie. He and Victoria had a kind of like tumultuous relationship. They had lived together for a while. During that time, police had become acquainted with their address because Frankie had not believed that Madison was his child at first and only accepted it once there was a paternity test confirming that, like, Maury style, you are the father. (laughs) But police ended up ruling him out because they discovered that his alibi was solid and it placed him in Reading, which was over an hour and a half away that day. So there was no way he could have committed the murder. Mm-hmm. They then looked into a more recent on and off again boyfriend of Victoria's, whose name is Turner Higgins. They were currently on the off side, and Higgins had worked at a locksmith and had been the one to change the locks for Jean when Ernest moved out. So he could have had access to get inside the house, but he was quickly cleared by his alibi. So, I mean, police are doing their due diligence. This is a 180 from outcry, you know? I mean, they're actually Mm -hmm. asking questions like, is this the person that looks like somebody that did something to you? Do you have a last name? Like, you know, not just like, so his name is Greg. Let me pick out a Greg off the street. Like, they're actually doing an investigation. Well, yeah. And they're, they're looking into every possibility that could have happened because, yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty, pretty clear that somebody with motive or the most motive it seems like the dad but who knows it could maybe not have been that that person so we have to look at all of the people that could be involved and i don't know i'm just really proud of them yeah i mean you want to play good and you you hope you play good and i think they played pretty I think good they played pretty good you did that when i did not i just want to put that on the record i didn't quote it first you did it fits a lot of stuff though don't you think uh, yeah, that's why I quote it every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, okay, so police end up executing search warrants at Ernest's parents' house where he'd been living, and as well as his car. And in the car, they found a notebook. This is so... Come on, Scott. They found a notebook where Scott <laughs> had written, we were out spotting deer and coyotes. And they're like, okay, if you... If you know that that's what you were doing, why would you need to write it down, like, to remember it? Like, 9, 10 a.m., spotted coyotes and deer. Like, (laughs) that's not necessary unless you know there's a reason you need to have something for that specific time, right? Like, yeah, exactly. I don't go around all day long being like, 132, bought unnecessary shit off eBay. Yeah. Like, that goes without saying, first off, but, yeah. Well, and there would be a paper trail, but still. But still, yeah. Yeah, because if 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 it's the truth, you will, you may not remember every single detail, but you're going to be like, okay, well, Christmas Eve, it, there, there's your anchor, right? Your time anchor, Christmas Eve. It's a holiday. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they're saying, seven Tuesdays ago, what were you doing? That's not what we're saying. Exactly. What did you do on Christmas Eve day? And they're only asking them a few days after that, okay, well, Ernest and I got up early and we went hunting and we were there till like, I don't know, 9 or 9.30 and then we came home and had breakfast, like whatever it is. You don't need to write that down 
Right. A big event like that, you're not going to forget that. Small details about the event? Possibly. Mm -hmm. Was I wearing a blue hat or was I wearing my black hat? Was I, did did we come in at 11.02 or did we come in at 11.15? Like, I don't, you know, that kind of stuff makes more sense than, wait, I'm going to need, really need to remember that we, we went hunting for six hours. Right. Yeah, because if, I mean, if it's the truth, then you're, you'll just be able to recall it. You don't have to remember what time did I say and get your lies mixed up because. Exactly. It's the same. Yeah. So investigators had him come back in, but Ernest refused to speak and asked for his attorney. He left later with his attorney. We have said it time and time again. I think you should always lawyer up. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about these kinds of cases and I know where it's going, I'm like, guilty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Be like, well, that's case closed. Fine, hang exactly. him. He, he got a lawyer. He's guilty. Yes. But Scott was less taciturn. At first, he stuck to the same story that he had originally told police. He and Scott had been in the woods together from two ish to nine ish. And that switched when the police showed him crime scene photos of his sister in law and nieces shot dead. He gave up. Scott told the police everything he knew. He said he had driven Ernest to Middleton in the wee hours of the morning on December 24, 2002, when Ernest told him that he wanted to get his dog back from Jean. Scott knew that this was illegal because of Ernest's restraining order and the conditions of his bail, but Ernest had been verbally abusive to Scott, and they had both been drinking, so Scott caved. Once in Middleton, they parked a block away from the house, and Ernest got something out of the back seat before he left. Scott was told to stay in the car. Ernest came back about 10 minutes later looking more fr frantic and jittery, but he wouldn't tell Scott what happened. Scott drove Ernest back to Cambria and into the woods where Ernest disposed of the pistol and the shotgun he had. <sighs> Scott. Mm-hmm. Big fucking difference, dude. Uh, yeah, and I'm sorry. Again, I love my family members. So if you do something like this, and I know that something sinister took place, I don't value one life over three innocent lives. I'm sorry, mm -mm, I don't. Mm -mm. And they left a baby for dead? Jesus, like, yeah. And and that being his grandchild, by the way, but obviously, again, like you said, you can't wrap your head around it because it doesn't make any fucking sense because this person is a monster and has no regard for human life. But, like... Oh, shit. What was I about to say? Oh. Um, it's funny that you would forget in the middle of such a passionate... I know. I was... Well, I, I think I got <laughs> off of what I was originally saying because I got real pissed about the grandbaby. But... Oh, but like... You're like, and another thing... Wait, what was I going to say? It's kind of what happened. Um, but like, okay, even if these are not your, you know, your favorite people or whatever... Could you at least think about, like, the implications for yourself? Like, if I sit here and lie to the police and I know something, then it's going to look real bad on me and they're not going to try to help me at all. Like, no, it's the early bird gets the worm. What do they call it? The first to squeal gets the best deal or whatever. Just like, I hate it, yes. but it's true. It's true. And I have a question. If Scott was in the car... And let's let's play devil's advocate. Let's say he's like, I just drove him there to get the dog. I don't know what happened. And then Ernest comes out super jittery with two guns. And no dog. No dog. <laughs> yeah. What do you think happened in there? Exactly. 
Yeah. Oh, and then, by the way, you've heard all over the news that they've all been killed. Yeah. And you don't, like, think maybe you have pertinent information that could help out. Right. It's messed up. Not a good look, dude. But he did end up taking the police out to the woods to find the gun. So the serial numbers on the gun showed that it belonged to Ernest's uncle. And one source said ballistic tests confirmed that the pistol was the same pistol used to kill Jean, Victoria, and Elizabeth. But another source said that the gun and ammo were too ammo. Oh my god, the gun and ammo were too degraded to get an accurate comparison. But I mean, still, he brings them out to the woods. There are guns there, and we now have placed Ernest at the scene. So, what do you exactly? Yeah. In January 2003, when the trial for sexual abuse should have started, Ernest was charged with three counts of first-degree murder, as well as burglary and reckless endangerment for leaving Madison alone. The prosecutors combined the original sexual assault assault charges with the rest of the charges and would use Victoria and Elizabeth's testimony when the accusations were made. Typically, this would be hearsay, but there was an exception to the rule called forfeiture by wrongdoing exception, as the theory was that Ernest killed them to get rid of the witnesses for the sexual abuse case. Scott was charged. That's exactly what happened. It's not a theory. That's exactly what happened. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Scott was charged as as an accomplice, and both were held without bail. But Ermit, oh, mm, I said Ermist. <laughs> Ermie. Ermie. But Ernest is a blabbermouth and doesn't know how to be cool, which actually works out really well for the prosecution. While he was in jail awaiting his trial, Ernest came up with a new plan to get himself out of this mess. Oh, my God. And as we all know, Ernest's track record, great. He can get himself out of a jam. Oh, right? yeah. His plans, top notch. Exactly. So what he did was he turned to the obviously very trustworthy fellow inmate, James Meddings. Ernest approached Meddings to attempt to hire a hitman to kill Frankie Ramos. See, (laughs) you're like, what? Frankie? What the fuck did he do? I know. Frankie's like, I'm just here living my life. I don't know why he's obsessed with me. What is the deal? (laughs) I know. Genius Ernest thought that he could get a hitman to kill Frankie and make it look like a suicide. Then they would leave a suicide note where Frankie would confess to the murders. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> okay. 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 It's a, uh, it's, that's one method. It's a plan. Yep. That's know? one yeah. way to, you know, there's, there's how many ways to skin a cat? As they Annoying. say. So yes. this is one of them. Okay. Sure. Give, okay. give it Let's a try. See how that works out. For- Bold move, Cotton. <laughs> Let's see how that pays off. Exactly. So Meddings was like, cool, 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 cool. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I'm gonna go talk to the police officer about something completely different, but not about you, though. No, not about you. I'm just you. gonna go talk to him about something completely unrelated. You know what it was? It was I heard this joke, okay, earlier today, yes. and I thought he would think it was really funny, you know, because he's a jokester. Exactly. So that's all I'm gonna tell him. Right, and the timing of it has—it's not of importance. I just remembered no. it. Exactly, I just remembered it. So what Meddings does is he goes and tells the police about Ernest's desire for a hitman. Mm-hmm. And police got a DEA agent to pose as a hitman and then recorded them discussing the plans to murder Frankie using Tank <laughs> as a code name for Frankie For Frankie. Ta- Frank the Tank, are you serious right now? You could not come up with anything that was like more than two letters off of his fucking name? They are like, <laughs> okay, we're going to actually 
the code word, no, nobody's going to crack this, tanky tramos. <laughs> yeah. And they, like, legit, the phone conversation is he's like, um, so how, how, uh, what time do you think the tank wakes up? Like, it's stupid shit like that. Like, so, mm-hmm. so the tank is out there by itself then? Yeah, the tank will be there. Yeah, you can go and pick up the tank. That's fine. It's like, who talks about a tank guys. like that? And didn't they even say, like, the tank's daughter or something like that? Like, yes. they literally, like, personified this tank. <laughs> it's so yeah. bad. And he's just like, totally a hitman. I'm definitely not talking to a police officer and nobody's going to crack this code because, oh, by the way, I'm in fucking jail where everything's recorded. <laughs> but he used a foolproof code <laughs> word. He did. He did. I mean, he tried. Um, Tanky Tramos. <laughs> come on. Who's going to get that? So, of course, they added criminal solicitation to his charges because fucking idiot. So, <laughs> Ernest Attorney does what he has to do, right? And he says, I am a fucking professional, so I'm going to claim that this guy is innocent. So he is like, there's no physical evidence to link Ernest to the scene, and the only real evidence was Scott's, quote-unquote, patently ridiculous and absurd story. He said the case is thin to the point of non-existent. Like, again, pretty bold. Pretty bold, yeah. So... The defense originally claimed that the reason Ernest had tried to get a hitman to kill Frankie Ramos was because Ernest believed that Ramos had killed his family, so he was just getting his revenge, and you can't blame him for that. (laughs) I mean, it did work out really well for him in the grand scheme of things because then they couldn't testify against him in a sexual abuse case, but that is just an unintended consequence, you know? Mm -hmm. Sometimes good things do happen to shit people. Right. And it's not his fault that he happened to benefit from such a tragic thing. No. But he had to avenge them. Sure. Yeah, because he loved them. By taking out the tank. Mm-hmm. Tanky Tramos. So that, of course, doesn't fly. And then they were like, wait a second. Hang on, hang on, hang on. No. Start over. Do over. Um. Actually, Ramos wasn't the killer, but this other guy was the killer. And everybody's just like, can you just please stop talking? Like, none of this is making sense. We don't buy any of it. Like, you need to just get over it. You are embarrassing yourself. (laughs) Exactly. Like, everybody is embarrassing themselves. Stop it. So the arraignment was scheduled for April 17th, 2003. Scott testified against Ernest in exchange for a lesser charge and sentence. He told the court about how when Jean filed for divorce in July, Ernest told them that he was going to shoot her. Way to fucking go, Scott. (laughs) Like, again, if he'd called the police and said, this guy says he's going to shoot her, they're not going to do anything, I guess, but maybe let Jean know. Okay, but also maybe Scott could have, oh, I don't know, not driven his fucking brother to their house. Right. Yeah, knowing that he was planning to shoot her. At some point. Yeah. Yeah. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Scott also told the story of that Christmas Eve and that Ernest had told him to lie about where they'd been that night. In the end, Ernest was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder for all three women, along with conspiracy, reckless endangerment of Madison, burglary, and criminal solicitation. He was sentenced to three death sentences. Scott was convicted of third-degree murder and sentenced to 12 to 25 years. In January of 2014, the Pennsylvania Superior Court decided that Ernest would keep the sexual abuse charges on his criminal record because they are inextricably tied to the murders, and Ernest was entitled to no relief that would expunge his record. Okay. Due to appeals, which he's now exhausted on the state level, and a moratorium on executions by Governor Tom Wolfe, Ernest Hulliver is still on death row. Hmm. I don't I don't you miss him. Think. I'm not upset about it. No. Yeah. You got to think, though. If he had just gone on trial, and I'm saying not just because it's not, I'm not, like, discounting or discrediting it, but in the grand scheme of things, if he had gone on trial for the sexual abuse, what kind of sentencing would he have gotten compared to three death sentences? Right. Like, and his brother would not be serving a term. I, if I was Scott, I'd be mad as hell at him. Yeah, for sure. Be like, you fucking asshole. And to be honest, I'm completely surprised whenever I was researching it and watching whenever they said that he was going to try to implicate somebody else as the murderer. I thought he was going to say Scott. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't put a pat. I mean, this guy yeah. would um sell his grandmother for a nickel or whatever. Yes. Isn't that like a thing? I don't know, but yes. Yeah, he doesn't care. He'd be like, I'll take one goat, two cows. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are you ready for case number two? Yes, I'm totally ready. I am. I don't know if everybody else is. Okay, I hope so. Trigger warning for this one is infant and child murder, suicide, and possible mental illness. All right, this one goes back to 1929. So Christmas Day, 1929. 43-year-old Charlie Lawson walked the grounds of his tobacco farm in Germantown, North Carolina. He'd been reportedly behaving erratically recently and had talked to his doctor about the headache and insomnia he'd been dealing with. Whether this is the reasoning behind his actions or not, Charlie Lawson wouldn't live through Christmas and neither would most of his family. 
According to Greensboro.com's article about this case, the newspapers for Greensboro and Winston-Salem reported the details of that day. Lawson found two of his daughters by the barn. They were unsuspecting when their father approached them, and they didn't see it coming when he shot them. Twelve-year-old Carrie Lee and seven-year-old Maybell died there in the snow. Lawson used two rocks from the barn and laid their heads on them like pillows and then crossed their arms over their chests like they were already in a coffin. Then, Lawson walked toward the family's cabin where his 37-year-old wife, Fanny, was, and he shot her as well. He entered the house and shot 17-year-old Marie, who'd just made the family a Christmas cake. Then, for whatever reason, Lawson stopped shooting. Instead, he bludgeoned his 4-year-old son, James, and 2-year-old son, Raymond. Finally, Lawson beat the youngest daughter, Mary Lou, to death, and she was just three months old. <sighs> After murdering his family, Lawson put their heads on pillows, and like Carrie Lee and Maybell, he crossed their arms. Then Lawson walked to the woods with the family dogs, Sam and Queen, on his heels. Footprints in the snow tell his next actions almost as well as words. He walked to the nearby creek, washed the blood off his hands, and then walked in circles around a tree for an unknown amount of time. Finally, he shot himself. This is rural North Carolina, and on Christmas Day, it was tradition to go rabbit hunting, so neighbors or anyone with an earshot wouldn't have considered it unusual to hear multiple gunshots. So the bodies were found later that day by family members who'd come by just to, just to say Merry Christmas. Oh my gosh. I mean, how awful. Mm-hmm. And just, like, walking up to a massacre. Yeah, absolute massacre. So they walk up to the house expecting to be like, Merry Christmas. And they find a house covered in blood, furniture out of place. They found the small children laying with their heads on pillows and arms across their chest. Charlie was found in the woods with two notes in his pocket written on tobacco auction receipts. Neither made a lot of sense, and they were very incomplete. One said, trouble can cause, and that's it. And the other one said, nobody to blame, and that's it. So he probably was starting them and heard commotion, maybe, and Mm -hmm. stopped because he didn't have time. Yes. So only one member of the Lawson family survived this attack, and it's unknown if that was on purpose or pure accident. Arthur Lawson was 16 years old, and he had gotten permission from his dad to walk to Walnut Cove with a friend to get ammunition for rabbit hunting. It was thought that maybe Charlie let Arthur go because he was big enough and strong enough to have intervened with Charlie's plans. The family and friends, along with deputies, removed the bodies from the house themselves. It was a difficult process since the hill the Lawsons lived on was covered in snow and was quite precarious. Each body was wrapped in bed sheets and laid on top of an improvised sled and then carefully guided down the hill to hearses that were waiting on the main road. The hearses took the bodies to a funeral home in Walnut Cove, but they were not equipped to handle autopsies and embalming on this scale, so they were taken to a funeral parlor in Madison. This funeral home was above a hardware store, and this building is now Madison Dry Goods Co. But upstairs is reportedly still a museum to the funeral parlor with memorabilia from when it was a working mortuary. Dr. C.J. Helsebeck, who had heard Charlie Lawson's complaint about his health, was also the coroner for Stokes County, so he was responsible for the autopsies, and they began the autopsies that same Christmas day. Stokes County Sheriff John Taylor must have used his position to pull some strings. His brother, Dr. Spotswood Taylor, 
was home from Maryland for the holidays. He worked at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore, and he would return there with Charlie Lawson's preserved brain in a jar of formaldehyde. It's unknown where the brain is today or if it still exists. Are we going to just completely glaze over the fact that his brother's name is Dr. Spotswood Taylor? <laughs> We're just going to pretend like that didn't happen? Yeah, I guess I guess we did, didn't we? But we can't. Yeah. Spotswood no. Taylor. That's interesting. It is. Do you call them Spot? Oh, that's fun. Spot, time for dinner. See, Spot run. <laughs> yeah, he probably, like, was awesome at charades or... You know, you could just, like, act out children's books. <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> his mom would be like, C-Spot, um, do his homework. <laughs> C-Spot, get off of Fortnite. <laughs> C-Spot is grounded for two weeks. Okay, I think we've done enough C-Spots. Oh, okay, yeah, we, we ran that into the ground. Yeah. So while conducting yeah. <laughs> the autopsy of Charlie Lawson, it was noted that his brain was relatively small and a central portion seemed underdeveloped. Two days after the massacre, I feel like we, I feel like we've heard about people doing these autopsies of serial killers or killers' brains all the time, and they don't find much there. Like Mm-mm. John Wayne Gacy, they did it with his brain, and they're like, it's completely a completely normal brain. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Why are we still... <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, this was, I guess, way before all that. But yeah, it it doesn't seem... No to, excuse. It doesn't seem to do a whole lot. Two days after the massacre, five hearses carried five coffins to the Browder County Cemetery. Three-month-old Mary Lou was in the coffin with her mother wrapped in her arms. The family was buried in a mass grave that had been dug by their friends and family. Thousands of people showed up. Friends and family, yes, but random people in the press also joined the mourners out of curiosity. This felt very like who killed little Gregory. I mean, mm-hmm. for that time period, that had to have been a media circus. Like, oh, because yeah. people were coming by the house. That they just wanted to, like, basically, like, rubbernecking. Like, yeah. but you have to go way the hell out Nosey. of your way to do that. It's like a day's trip to go take a look at this. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Everyone was curious about this family and their horrific end. No one knew why Charlie Lawson had killed his wife and six of his seven kids. There were obviously rumors. One rumor was that Charlie had impregnated his oldest daughter, 17-year-old Marie, and he was embarrassed and ashamed, so he killed them all and himself. However, nothing in the autopsy would suggest that she'd been pregnant. After the family was buried, Charlie's brother Marion Lawson decided to open the Lawson house to the public as a museum or tourist attraction. Everything was left as it had been the day of the murders, including the cake Marie had baked that no one got to eat. Marion claimed that he did this to raise money for Arthur, who was now an orphan and loved to deal with the mortgage of the farm. And he also said people were stopping in anyway, and they were, like, going through the house and stuff. So instead of trying to keep all these people from trespassing, basically, he was like, well, I'll just charge them, and that way I can keep an eye on, like, who's there and stuff. Well, yeah, I might as well. I mean, I I don't agree with that mentality of, like, exploiting a murder or a crime scene. But at the same time, it's like, if they're going to do it, I don't know. I could see where he's coming from. Yeah. One infamous visitor to the house was mobster John Dillinger. 
Just after he escaped from prison, Dillinger was on his way to Florida with his girlfriend and a friend. It was reported that they took a detour on their travels to visit the Lawson house, and while they were in Germantown, Dillinger supposedly left a note for a local lawyer that taunted him for missing America's most wanted of the era. Try and catch me, sucker. Basically. All right, so that's... That's it. Oh, but the thing about Charlie with his headaches and all that, he had gotten hit in the face with, what was it, an axe or something? It was an axe. It was an axe. Yeah. So a few months before that, I think, or maybe a couple of years before that. And he'd been having really bad headaches and insomnia, and they said he wasn't acting like himself. So himself. So I'm wondering, did he suffer a brain injury? You know, because you hear about that when, when people suffer traumatic brain injuries, they're personalities change and things like that is it possible that something happened there and for whatever reason he believed that they were all better off dead or you know i don't know but well yeah people who are the most gentle non-violent people after a severe brain injury become can become very violent yeah yeah and it's not who they normally are but it can can happen. Mm-hmm. All right. So last case, the Ashland tragedy. On December 23rd, 1881, 15-year-old Emma Carrico was having a sleepover with her friend across the street, 14-year-old Fanny Gibbons. I love the how many Fannies we're talking I about. I know. There's so many Fannies. It's so cute. But isn't that like a bad word in the UK? Oh, it is. Well, it's the word Fanny for... means see you next Tuesday. Yeah. It's not a bad word, I guess, but a lot of people don't like it. Right. We use it for, for butt. Well, yeah, but kind of like an adorable like old lady way to say it. Like, oh... I touched your fanny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, it's precious. It, mm-hmm. In no way is it yeah, it's the not. same as see you next Tuesday. Right, yeah, exactly. Fanny's mother, Martha Gibbons, and younger brother, Sterling, who was 11 at the time, were going to Ironton, Ohio, to visit their older married daughter-slash-sister for the Christmas holiday. The mother and son would be gone overnight, and Mrs. Gibbons had arranged with Emma's mother for Emma to stay the night and keep Fanny and her 17-year-old brother Robert company while she was away. So Robert, even though he was older, he had been injured a few years earlier in a freight car accident and had lost his leg, so he needed additional care. Fanny was described as magnetic, outgoing, and cheerful. She was also described as being a beautiful young girl who looked older than 14. She seemed to be a young girl that a lot of the men in town were interested in. And I guess at that time, 14, I mean, they got married at 14, right? I think that people, yeah, back then, I think that they did. I mean, it just seems gross to me. It's like, she's 14. It's gross. But do you have to think about, I don't know specifically about back then, but years ago, long, long time ago, the life expectancy wasn't as high as it is now. Right. So 14 would have been likened to 20. Right, right. Because in the other case we just finished, Arthur, who survived because he was out buying ammunition, didn't he live to like 32 or something? I or oh, okay. I thought it was Maybe it was a little older. But yeah, 40s. he was not very old at all. No. Um, 
Okay, so Fanny, Emma, and Robert were home alone since their mom was gone, and their dad wasn't really around the house often. So their their dad was John Gibbons, and he the jobs that he worked would take him away from the home. So he'd be gone for like weeks at a time on a job, and he'd be hundreds of miles away sometimes. He just he traveled and just picked up whatever work he could basically. And I want to point out too, just timing wise, 1881. That's just 20 or so years after the Civil War. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even like I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just like dialed into this specific case. But yeah, that's man, that seems like like thousands of years ago, doesn't it? (laughs) Like it Mm -hmm. just just the progress and sometimes not as much progress as you'd think in different ways. I don't know. It's just crazy. Wow. But the things that we can accomplish after almost just 200 years, which is not a super long time. Yeah. I mean, Am I going to say that it's fucked up that we're not in flying cars yet because we were guaranteed that by the year 2000? Sure. Yeah. No, and I think that that's completely understandable that you feel that way. We're supposed to be the Jetsons, but, you know. I mean, even Family Matters, their episode for the early 2000s, I think it's like 2007, there was a hovering car in front of their house. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just saying. We're like so behind. Mm-hmm. So at this point, or at this time, John Gibbons had been gone f- since December the 16th on whichever job he was on at that point. So he's been gone a couple weeks now. Since it was the 1880s and not the 1980s, we don't know what girls did for slumber parties. They probably did still talk about boys, but, I mean, they can't prank call people. No. I'm sure they didn't do MASH. No. So did they write crank letters? Hmm. I don't know. We don't know. Whatever they did that night, it would be the last night they all three spent alive, though. Around 6 a.m. on Christmas Eve day, Emma's mother saw flames from across the street. She rushed over and screamed for help, but nothing anyone did could have saved the three teenagers inside. People in the neighborhood rushed to help and even went to the cabin, even went in the cabin to rescue the kids. When they were brought out of the house, they were already dead. At the time, everyone assumed they died from the fire or, like, smoke inhalation, but once there was, like, actual literal light shed on the situation, like, the sun came up, (laughs) it became apparent that the teens were dead before the fire was started. Physicians from the community came to the scene and noticed that all three had had their skulls crushed and had been murdered in a horrific fashion. Fanny and Emma were also sexually assaulted. How did they how how did they tell that then? I just wonder. Um I don't want to get not trying too to be graphic like, about it. The only yeah, thing I'm not trying to of, get weird, but just um fluids. Yeah, the only thing behind. that I can think of is possibly undergarments. Well, I would think undergarments would be in disarray. Um possible like tearing or bleeding or something maybe okay yeah yeah because I'm just I'm I'm not trying to be gross I'm just you know because there are cases like now where you might find a victim nude or clothes pulled down and it seems that something like that has happened but then once they actually do the autopsy they find out that you know it didn't Mm -hmm. for whatever reason so I just kind of wondered like what that protocol would have been um well yeah and I don't think they had luminol back then so exactly The community was outraged and banded together to solve this unspeakable crime. So this is very fine hanging. Like, and you know, I mean, of course, like you want to find out who did it and you you want somebody to pay for it. It's it's horrific. But, 
Y'all, this case goes off the rails in like so many ways. <laughs> so many mm-hmm. ways. It was, it was a really interesting one to read about. I'd never heard about it. The um, So basically everything in Ashland stopped, right? Like pretty much everybody's goal at this point is figure out who did this. Bloody sheets and pillowcases and an axe and crowbar that were covered in hair and blood were all secured as evidence along with the clothing the kids had been wearing. And on December 26th, the service was held at the Methodist Episcopal Church for all three teenagers, and there were hundreds of people in attendance. Then the bodies of Emma, Fanny, and Robert were buried in a common grave at Ashland Cemetery. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Acting Mayor John Means developed a committee to investigate, and he raised money to support the effort, and in just a few days, $1,000 was raised, and Sloan wrote in that this is just under 30000 today. That's incredible. It's very incredible, in just two, like a couple days. Yeah, and, and that is, you have to think, people are giving money that means a lot to them. They're not you or I giving five bucks, you know? Mm-hmm. Like... That that's a lot. That's really incredible. I mean, the community really came together. You can you can see how much they cared. Absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing. Two detectives came to aid Deputy U.S. Marshal George Heflin and J.B. Norris. 1880s or 1980s or 2080s. It doesn't matter. The first place they look is the closest to the victims and work their way outward. Suspect one was John Gibbons. He hadn't been seen since the 16th, and no one knew where he was. J.B. Norris was gung-ho about it being John Gibbons. Despite there being no evidence other than his absence, (laughs) Norris's accusation, what? It's just ridiculous. They're like, we haven't seen that guy. He did it. Like, I don't need anything else. (laughs) He's the one that did it. No motive. I can't think of a reason why he would do it. He could very well be hundreds of miles away with no way to get here in time, but he fucking did it. Exactly. I don't know how, but I, I bet my bottom dollar <laughs> exactly. on it. Exactly. Yeah, so Norris's accusation gained traction within the community, so much so that the Cincinnati Inquirer straight up called for John Gibbons to be arrested and hanged. And hanged with no evidence. And they're just like, and I mean, that's the thing. You see it in cases today. The police will release something publicly and be like, well, maybe it's this guy. And then the community, there are people in the community who no matter what you tell them, no matter what evidence comes out, no matter what happens, this person lives in the cloud over their head for the rest of their lives. Well, and the media and the newspapers, they don't help at all. Mm -mm. And Ron Burgundy was not the first person to discover that salacious shit sells, right? Like, (laughs) that's, that's a tale as old as time. 
Exactly. Yep. So Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin wasn't as confident that Mr. Gibbons was the murderer of two of his kids and a neighbor's child. Not only that, but Heflin thought that this had to be the work of more than one person. He felt Gibbons was innocent and located him to try and prove it. On Saturday, December 31st, 1881, Gibbons was located in West Virginia where he had been living and working. Heflin had to be the one to tell Gibbons about his children and then had to tell him that there were people blaming him for it. Can you imagine? Why they didn't just fax him, I don't know. Well, that's irresponsible is what it is, and it's lazy, yeah. if you ask me. Exactly. Um, yes. But can you imagine, like, finding out eight days after your children are killed that they've been killed? No. Nobody's had any way to get in touch with you. And then on top of that, and they're like, oh. Here's the thing. So it's almost like, do you want the good news or the bad news? And he's like, neither are good news. Yeah, that's uh, I don't I don't know. So they're like, your kids are they've been killed. He's like, oh my god. And they're like, are you ready for the bad news? He's like, what? Everybody thinks you did it, and they want you to hang. It's like, what? We'll see. And in that moment, and it happens. It happens so often. It's so unfair. Sometimes for good reason, but it happens in an unfair way in this situation. In a time where he's supposed to be mourning yeah. his children, he has to be defending himself. Yeah. And it does not ever look good. It does not ever mm-hmm. look good. You cannot look innocent. It just sounds bad all the way around because then people will say, you're not grieving enough. It's like, well, I kind of can't. Mm-hmm. And it's. Yeah, you have to go on like autopilot mode or like compartmentalize everything mm-hmm. and be like, okay, now I have to really fight for myself and then I can look at this later. Right. It's kind of like when. um you when you have you know like a parent die or something like that and when that happens you know we've seen it you know when our grandfather passed away you have to the children that survive have to then go into business mode like yeah, okay i'm going to do the funeral how are we going to pay yeah. for this i've got to work through all of this like life insurance exactly we've got to go through all file all this paperwork blah, blah 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 and it's like months before they really can sit down and just be like oh my gosh i'm grieving this person like it's mm-hmm. it's just there's it sounds horrible but it's a real thing is like the business of death you have to process all that first because it's required and then you can kind of allow yourself to go further into it. It's very sad. It is sad. Gibbons was being boarded by a man named Andrew Hager, who Marshal Heflin dragged back to Ashland so he could alibi for John Gibbons, and Hager said he had seen Mr. Gibbons every single day since the 16th of December, which is when he got there for his job. He also noted that there was no way that John Gibbons could have gotten from his remote house in West Virginia to Ashland, Kentucky, and back in less than a day, because again, He's seen him every day like clockwork. J.B. Norris was like, eek, ooh, yuck, um, whoopsie, that's embarrassing. And so he was like, actually, my mom is calling me. You can't hear her, but I can, so I have to go. <laughs> right. Bye. Uh, see ya. Yeah. And then there's just this smoke trail from where, or like fire trail. Yeah. Where just hauled ass. J.B. R-U-N-N-O-F-T. He did. J.B. Norris shaped hole in the wall. Like, bye. Exactly. <laughs> so John Gibbons is cleared, which is, I mean, thank goodness for Heflin, like actually yeah, doing an investigation. Re- yep. Actually looked into mm-hmm. it. So they're kind of back to square one until January 2nd, 1882. So that's when a man named George Ellis walked into the Ashland General Store. He was a regular customer 
pretty much there. And when he was buying his cigar, one of the owners was just making small talk. And at this point, there is nothing else to talk about, right? It's just this murder. Mm -hmm. So he's like, well, you know, now that they cleared Gibbons, who's going to go down for this? And the owner said that when he said that, Ellis got really nervous, like visibly nervous. He lost all of his color. His hands started shaking and he just like mumbled something and hurried up and left. So then he ended up walking the streets for hours until he ended up at Deputy U.S. Marshal Heflin. Ellis decided he needed to get something off his chest. So Heflin had some other people come to be witnesses to the confession. And according to one source, there are two versions of the first confession, one more graphic than the other. Kind of like one person was taking more detailed notes than the other person, but the source shared the less graphic of the first two confessions. So he says, a few evenings prior to the 24th, I almost want to do that voice that Greg Giraldo does when he talks about um, the, like, Civil War soldiers. My dearest Hannah. <laughs> yes. yes. A few evenings prior to the 24th, I met Kraft, who stated that he was, like, kind of want to, but. Oh, my gosh. I kind of want you to keep going, but this is a lot. <laughs> it would take you to have so to do. long, do. Yes. Um, <laughs> he stated that he was going to see Fanny Gibbons and take her some black candy, which sounds disgusting. And what is that, he like was licorice? Gonna, I think so, yeah. Okay, so he's like, I'm going to take her some black candy. Okay, fine. Gross, but fine. And also, he was going to have intercourse with her. Okay, that took a turn. And he wanted me to come. Why would you invite somebody to that okay. event? Uh, exactly, but also, is that, like, if you give someone black candy, does that mean you automatically get inside of their pants because i don't think that that's the case <sighs> dudes are so stupid there's literally no way to tell he's like but i brought you the candy." exactly well i brought you candy so definitely gonna bang me right no you fucking idiot mm -hmm. yeah about midnight the fatal night we all started craft neil and myself so what he's saying is there's a guy named craft george clap craft god george craft there's also a guy named william neil so he's saying the three of them are together this whole night so he says, Kraft, Neil, and myself got started. Then we got to the house. Kraft raised the window with an old axe and stepped in first. Neil followed, and I stayed behind on the porch, and afterwards I went in. Notice how he distances himself from any wrongdoing this whole time, which is, like, fucking classic. He was there, exactly. but he didn't like, do anything. I, yeah, I was outside in the getaway car, but I didn't, I didn't see anything. I didn't know that's what we were going there to do. I just went with him, and then I was just like, okay, what are we going to do? And then I just left, and I didn't tell anybody, but I didn't know. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, he was like, uh, do you want to come watch me bang some chick? Yeah. And bring some candy? Like, that's just weird all by Super it. Y'all are gross. Quit it. Robbie was the first aroused and started to get up when Kraft said, you had better lie still. Kraft then went to the bed where the two girls were sleeping and began to take improper liberties with them. Robbie said, you better stay away from there, and Kraft hit him with the axe. He fell back on the lounge, then plunged forward and fell fully left from under the stairs where he was found. The girls screamed when Kraft jumped on the bed, and they both said, George Kraft, what are you here for? Emma also started to jump from the bed when Neil choked her and pulled her onto the floor. She fought him, and I held her while he outraged her. Ew. Ew. Super gross. I think that they're using the term outraged for rape, and he says it more than once. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. I don't like any of it. Yeah, but that's, it's weird. Neil then struck her on the head with the big head of the crowbar, and she instantly died after throwing up her hands. 
Kraft also had some trouble with Fanny Gibbons and called on me to come help him. He then outraged her and killed her. Neil proposed killing the girls, and after they were dead, I took some coal oil, poured it over their bodies, and set fire to them with a match. We then left the house. Jesus. Ellis also told Heflin the men had actually been talking about this for months, and once, he and William Neal were doing yard work when Emma Carrico walked by. Ellis said that Neal, quote-unquote, swore that he intended to have carnal communication with her before Christmas. I was so excited that you had to read that line. <laughs> Ew! Ew! I hate it. Yeah. And what a deadline. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do her before Christmas. I wonder if they all, it's like American Pie. Let's get laid before graduation. Basically, yeah. What's the deal with Christmas? Like, why? <laughs> like, I get graduation. Because that's the... That's the most, that's the biggest important holiday coming up. It's like the other sister when they're like, why don't we wait till a big holiday? <laughs> like Thanksgiving. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Ellis said Kraft had made similar comments about Fanny Gibbons. George Kraft and William Neal were arrested and taken to the county jail where they were placed in the same cell as George Ellis, which is the same guy who just ratted them out. Like, yeah, he's the whole person who did that. Why would they put all of them in the same cell? The only thing that I can think is this was the 1880s. They probably only had one cell. Was crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Um, but unsurprisingly, Ellis recanted his confession by the next morning. And yes. then he would continue just going kind of back and forth, recanting and giving a different account and recanting and all, all that. So, much like the California Raisins, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people heard it through the grapevine that the men had been arrested and that there was a confession. They sure did. There was talk of vigilante justice, and while some people agreed that they wouldn't do anything without solid evidence and a judge's ruling, others had less scruples. And they were like, I don't care about any of that shit. No, get my pitchfork, get my... I don't even know what else. What else would you need for something like that? I'm not really sure. A sturdy, sturdy branch, perhaps. I know. After one court date, the men were moved to Lexington for their safety and placed on a ferry. The less law-abiding people of the community tried to follow, but the officers were able to dodge them. Back in the Lexington jail, Ellis tried to claim his original statement was coerced by Heflin, who had made him confess at gunpoint. It didn't matter. Things were in full swing. On January 16th, 1882, Neil and Kraft had been taken to their trials. Neil was up first. There were witnesses called saying that they had seen him in the vicinity of the Gibbons' home that night, one testimony being from J.D. House, who had helped carry the bodies out of the house. There was no physical evidence at all, but the prosecution had their star witness, George Ellis. Ellis was reportedly calm on the stand as he told his story. I have resided in Ashland <laughs> since... Ma no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have resided in Ashland since May, have been engaged as a laborer at Powell and House's Brickyard most of the time. I am acquainted with the prisoner, Neil, also with Kraft. We three worked together at the Brickyard. I did not see either of them during the day of December 23rd. I saw them later that night. They came to my house and called me. I was in bed and asked what they wanted. Kraft told me to get up. They wanted to see me. I did so, put on my clothes and boots, and went out to the gate. Kraft said, you must go with us. I asked him where. He said to the Gibbons and we will have some fun. I told him no. I, it was too late. I won't go. 
They said, I have to go, and Kraft threw his revolver. Neil said, bring him along, and we started. When we got inside the gate at the Gibbons, Kraft picked up an axe, and Neil got a crowbar from under the porch. Kraft pried open the window, and Neil was the first to go in. Kraft next. I did not want to go in, but Kraft drew his revolver and said, come on, and I did so. Then they took the axe and crowbar in the house with them. We passed through the front room to the second room, middle room, where the girls and Robbie were asleep. Kraft and Neil went to the bed where the girls were. Kraft took hold of Fanny Gibbons and Neil of Emma. They stifled the girls by putting their hands over their mouths and choking them. The noise awakened Robbie, who was asleep on a lounge in the same room. Kraft, who had choked Fanny near to death, left her and struck Robbie in the head with an axe and killed him, and then returned to the bed. Neil dragged Emma off the bed onto the floor, and Kraft ordered me to hold her until Neil accomplished his purpose, which he did. Yuck. After Neil let her up, she began to, to raise up, crying, and she said she was going to tell her mother. Neil said, I guess not, and struck her on the head with the crowbar, and she fell back on the floor dead. Wow. That was really rude. I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. Okay. Oops, looks like you're not. Yeah. Kraft ordered me to get up and come with him. I went into the, I went to the bed and put my hand on Mrs. Gibbon's shoulder, and Kraft outraged her, after which he got the axe and killed her. Kraft then said to me, you have done none of the killing, but you must have a hand in it and ordered me to get the coal oil and pour it over the dead body of the girls. I did and Kraft set them on fire and we left the house. When we got out, we separated. I was going home. I didn't know where they went. I got home about half past three o'clock and my wife got up to make breakfast. I laid down and did not go to sleep. I laid down but did not go to sleep. I heard the cry of fire about half past five when I was at breakfast. I went to the burning house but did not stay long. On the following Sunday morning, when Kraft and I met at a place where the house was burned and Kraft asked me to take a walk, we went out towards the cemetery. He begins to talk about the affair and said that it must be kept quiet. We met Neil and we all talked about it. They wanted me to sign a pledge never to talk about it. And I told them I would think about it. They told me. Yeah. I'll get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> They've already held him at gunpoint twice now, but they're not going to hold him at gunpoint to keep it secret and he's just gonna think about it and they're gonna be like okay dude see you later Look, just call me when you're ready let me know right and i love how they had a full-on conversation at the crime scene where they're like look we've done all of the killing just to put make this known and put it out there you haven't done any of this yeah. i want you to know that and i want me to know exactly that. <laughs> yeah but you do need to take part in some of this mm -hmm. so here's the tiniest little thing that you could do yeah Ugh. They told me I better do that, and if I did not do so by the next Saturday night, they would put an end to me. We separated. I went home, and Kraft and Neil went away together. What a crock of shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, all of it is just so stupid. Like, in the first one, he's distancing himself somewhat. In this one, he's like, no, he point blank said to me, look, you haven't killed anybody. You haven't done anything wrong. So we've got to have you have a hand in it just to save our own asses. But I did all the killing and I want you to know that and write it down and 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 let's document that. You've not killed anybody, okay? And if anybody accuses you, I'll come to your aid and say, no, he did not. Yeah, exactly. No, that was all me. But... The defense team actually used George Ellis's wife as a witness for them. So Thomas R. Brown was the defense attorney and also the judge or the son of the judge providing over the case. And he called Mrs. Ellis to testify that she woke up a few times that night and every time she did, her husband was there. 
She claimed to have not heard any noise that night like the other men coming to the house or her husband leaving and coming back. She was convinced that Mr. Ellis had not left the house that night. And you have to also think, we're not talking about the JonBenet Ramsey house that's like three stories and there's a front entrance and the back entrance and there's three staircases and all these things. This is a cabin. You're yeah, going to probably like two rooms at, at best. best. You're going to know if somebody came to the door and was yelling and saying, Ellis, get out here. We want you to get up and get out of bed. And he's like, oh, OK, I heard them calling for me. So I got out of bed like his wife would have woken up and been like, the hell you're going out on Christmas Eve. I do not even think so. Like, right. no, none and of also that. tell your friends to not come squawking at me at 11 p.m. Yeah, It's late. I'm trying to get some sleep at this hour. Yeah, that just mm-hmm. none of that happened. On February 6th, 1882, William Neal, 36-year-old husband and father of two, was found guilty after the jury deliberated for 17 minutes, and he was sentenced... 17? Yeah. He was sentenced to die by hanging on February 14th. Like, they did not waste any time. This is not a 30-year process. This is eight days from now, you're hanging. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Days after his trial was done, Crafts was also completed, and he was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging on the same day. Ellis would again tell a different story when, in February of 1882, he told a Cincinnati newspaper that he and two black men that he had hired were the ones to commit the rapes and murders, which, again, makes no sense. But he said that the two men had held the girls down and he did everything else. And then he said that while they were leaving the house, he'd see Neil and Kraft walking. So he decided to basically pin it on them. But then a few days later, he was like, I never said that. I don't know what you're saying. I never said that. This guy's a pathological liar. Yeah. What? Yeah. In May of 1882, Ellis was taken to his trial, and by June 2nd, he was found guilty and sentenced to life. And while some people in the community were satisfied, others were like, no, he needs to hang too. So around midnight that same night, a group of about 20 men and boys hijacked the engine house of the Chatteroy Railroad in Ashland and demanded that the watchman supply them with two flat cars. The mob of angry men and boys arrived in Catlitzburg in the jail around 3 a.m. and demanded to be let in, and they were, of course, refused, so they busted in by force, and they took Ellis out. They took him back to Ashland and hanged him from a giant sycamore tree not even 100 yards from the scene of the murders. His body hung there until afternoon when the coroner cut him down. Neil and Kraft won appeals and were granted new trials, so without the ever-changing testimony of George Ellis, there wasn't much to say that these men had actually been in the house, much less murdered the children. Their executions were delayed until the results of their new trials, and both men were certain they would be released. When the new trials were to begin in the fall of 1882, Governor G.W. Blackburn, which I can only think of D.W. Washburn, yeah, <laughs> told the community that if they didn't act right, he was not afraid to have every one of them killed in order to uphold the law. He was not fucking around. No, he was not. I would not want to test that guy. <laughs> no. Just like this time period is so crazy. I know. But also, I mean, this is not unlike, I feel like George, George, and there's so many Georges in this, yeah. I'm like, I can't. Judge Judy oh. would be like, if you don't act right, I'm going to massacre you. Yeah, she's not. Like using just her words. Oh, I'm, for I'm, sure. I'm, like, yeah. I'm scared of her and I've never met her. Yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. even though Blackburn was like, try me, bitch, basically, they, the people were still like, whatever, I'm going to do whatever I want. So 
there was some talk of unrest that had come to the attention of the police. And Major Allen, commander of the militia guarding the prisoners, switched the plan of taking the prisoners on the train to taking them via a passing steamer. So they were taking them to um, Carter County because they'd want a a change of venue. So they were going to bring them to this other courthouse. As they were leading... Anytime I hear... Anytime I hear the word steamer, you know what I think about. Miss Susie had a steamboat. The steamboat had a boat. Oh. Miss Susie went to heaven. The steamboat went to hell. I was thinking, operator. I was like, surely not a Cleveland steamer. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was either that or the song, the jingle for Stanley Steamers, because they're tough on dirt, but gentle on carpet. Oh, they are, aren't they? Yep. Mm-hmm. As they were loading the men, a mob of over 200 came to demand the prisoners be released to them. Alan was like, no, and finished boarding them anyway. So the mob <laughs> hopped on the train, and since the train ran alongside the river, they shot at the steamer while they rode. In What a time to be alive. I know, this is like fucking wild. In Maysville, the mob commandeered a ferry and caught up to the steamer and boarded. And it's unknown who shot first, but with the mob boarding their steamer, the militia was forced to retaliate. In this, It's like a freaking pirate ship now. You know, yes, like, they're like, that's exa- yes, exactly. It's like freaking maritime war over here like crazy <laughs> could you imagine like being on the side of the river or whatever like fishing and watching all of this happen you're like what is going on <laughs> yeah somebody must have got pissed in this gunfight stray bullets found innocent bystanders such as colonel lw Reppert, who had tried to calm the mob on shore he died from his wounds also killed by a rogue bullet was george keener a young father 14-year-old Willie Saray, and 25-year-old Alexander Harris. More were injured, including the husband of the Gibbons' oldest daughter, the one that Martha and Sterling had gone to visit, James McDonald. He was shot three times. Mrs. H.B. Butler was sitting at the train depot when she was hit in the thigh. In an inquest, the militia's actions would, the militia's actions would be found justifiable. In February of 1983, Kraft's new trial began, and by the 23rd, the jury was deliberating. After 10 minutes, they returned, saying that a juror had fallen ill, so they were released until the next morning when they would deliberate for 21 minutes before coming back with another guilty verdict. The judge asked Kraft if he had anything to say, and he, can, he said, I can say one thing. I am not guilty of that charge. I did not have time to put all of my witnesses here that I ought to have had, and I consider that I have not had a fair trial, for I know that I'm not guilty of that. I never as much as laid my hand on them. I never did. You might as well take a little innocent child and hang them is to hang me that's a stretch sir the closest i was to the gibbons house that night was when i lay in my bed at home asleep i did not see the house or george ellis or bill neal or any of the children that night the last time i saw any of miss gibbons children was on the wednesday before that i saw little fanny and spoke to her and that was the last time i was aroused by the alarm of fire I could, knowing the children burned up, stand on the scaffold and hold my hand up and swear in the sight of heaven that I did not see those children, Neil or Ellis, that night. I'm as innocent as the angels of that thing. I never thought of such a thing. I was better raised and had more respect for the people about me. I respected Mrs. Gibbons and her children. I'm glad I can stand here and say that I'm innocent. It's the truth. It's a put-up job. Gentlemen, the day is coming when I will be found innocent. 
And whatever he was going to keep saying, he was cut off by the deafening wails of Mrs. Gibbons. She had to be removed from the courtroom because she just could not pull herself back together. I mean, understandably yeah, so. I can't imagine. No. His execution was set for May 4th, 1883, but he was once again granted a reprieve when Governor Blackburn refused to confirm the date of execution. But his successor was less squeamish about being responsible for the death of these men. So after Blackburn left office, Governor Knott set the execution date for October 12th, 1883. But they wanted to, like his supporters wanted to wait and see how Neil's trial ended up because they were like, don't hang this guy until we see what this one does. And um, mm-hmm. the governor was like, no, that's it. So on October 11th, Kraft was taken to the gallows and his final words were, Lord, receive my soul. William Neal's trial began on April 30th, 1884, and he was once again found guilty and sentenced to death. He again tried to appeal his case, but other than delaying the execution, the appeals were unsuccessful. On March 3rd, 1885, Neal was the last of the men taken to the gallows. He made a speech about his innocence at the train station saying, Farewell, good people. I hope to meet you in heaven. I am persecuted to my death by Campbell and Redlin, who persecuted themselves and bulldozed that lunatic George Ellis into swearing lies against me. It's a fearful thing to walk upon the gallows and die for a crime I did not commit. Bear in mind that I will be proved innocent of this charge, just as I say now I am innocent. I have to be dragged back and hung like a dog for what I didn't do. I thank the citizens of Mount Sterling for their kindness to me. I hope to meet you in a better land. So he ended up being hanged on the 28th, and nobody in his family was there for it. Despite these men being convicted and hanged for the murders, there's still speculation of their innocence, and one detective on the case was quoted as saying, How would Ellis, Kraft, and Neil know the children were alone that night? Only three people knew that the children were alone. Mrs. Gibbons? her son Starling, and Mrs. Thomas. He suggested that based on that, logically, it would be one of them. What about Emma's family knew? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot more people that knew that they were alone, and the girls may have been like, we're having a sleepover. My mom is going out of town. Like, yeah, kids talk. They literally talked to nobody, though. It seems like. I mean, I don't know, but I... I think that with a case this old, we're no. never going to be able to make sense of no. it. Like, I wonder if they still have the DNA evidence. What do you think? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be like um, like the the monster on Jeepers Creepers when he touches anything and his fingerprints oh! are just dust and ashes. You had to bring that motherfucker up. <laughs> you know he scares me. I know he scares you, but I didn't show you a picture. No, but I'm thinking about it. Although last night I thought about him again because <laughs> when I was driving home, <laughs> when I was driving home, I was behind a semi truck and do you know what I'm talking about? The backs of yep. them. Sometimes they have these little flaps that they open up. Oh, I, that the reminds truck, me of his face. But like, yeah, all of the everything in that movie is like seared into my brain. I cannot. Baby yes. Justin Long. Oh, I love him. I know. Yeah, that's a creepy movie. But yeah, like if if the only evidence you really have to go on to implicate these people is George Ellis, who you cannot trust him as far as you can damn throw him, then I just don't know. But I was talking to Andrew about this last night. I'm like, I wonder how many people got hanged for stuff like this, you know? Like, well, I heard it was that guy. And they're like, fine, hang him. Like, 
Yeah, there was literally no investigation, and they were like, we'll hang as many people as we have to. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's not a problem. We don't, there's plenty of people in this town, okay? We'll make it with or without you. Exactly. Yeah, it's just, it's just crazy, but, um, bunch of, bunch of sad cases. So, um, yeah, Merry Christmas. (laughs) Oh, God. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Sloan for putting it all together. And, Yeah, hopefully your day turns out better than it started if you're starting it off with this. Yeah, and if you're not celebrating Christmas, we hope you're just having a great day. And if you want uh, more episodes, if you've not joined the Patreon yet, go check it out. It's uh, We're doing two free months if you do an annual membership. And uh, we got some goodies in there, so go check it out. There's like hundreds of bonus episodes you can download. Yeah, we're not dramatic or anything, and we definitely have done the math, but it's millions of episodes that are at your disposal. So. Definitely. And it's not the greatest Patreon in the world. It's just a tribute because we don't know what actually the greatest Patreon in the world is, but exactly. Check it out. <laughs> it's a tribute to the ba- greatest Patreon in the world. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, enough of that. I love it. We love you guys. Okay. Yep. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will meet you back here next week. Bye! The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at KillerQueensPodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.